Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. you've got Vikram here from Quantlayer and thanks for listening to our 23rd podcast. On this episode, Faison and I go through the semiconductor market cycle and how recent results from NVIDIA, Texas Instruments, and AMD have spooked the tech market. We look at NVIDIA's most recent conference call where they place all the blame on what they call a crypto hangover. We then look at two distinct predictions about this latest semi-cycle, one from Jag Capital, who got it completely wrong, and another from a supply chain magazine that got it completely right. We finish up with a teardown of a New York Times article by Nathaniel Popper titled Five Reasons Cryptocurrency Prices Are Plunging Again and What He Got Wrong. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. You've got Quantlayer here. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Faison, also known as The Wizard. What's going on, Faison? Uh, Not much. I'm good. Yeah. So uh, first topic, we'll just get right into it. Uh, Let's just go over these concerns around a market downturn. It's been a pretty tumultuous ride over the last couple of weeks in the markets, both on the traditional stock market side, but especially on the crypto side. On the stock market side, tech stocks have really taken a beating. So FANG stocks, that's Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, They've lost something in the $800 billion range of total market value uh-huh. in a pretty short, pretty quick amount of time. Uh, S&P and NASDAQ are now flat on the year, and the NASDAQ is down double digits since early October highs. Then if we look at specific t- cyclical names like Texas Instruments, it's down double digits from the highs. So ASML, which is one of these semiconductor capital equipment companies, they're down high single digits from the highs. Um, AMD, a chip company, they're down 34% from the highs. And by highs, I just mean early October. So that was, you know, at six weeks, uh, a little more than six weeks. So lots of stocks have peaked out around then. And one of the bigger chip movers, NVIDIA, they're down 25% on the year and they're down 48% from those highs in October. So 48% is a pretty huge drawdown in six weeks for a company like NVIDIA. So for those who aren't familiar, NVIDIA is one of these graphics cards companies that's historically built GPUs for PCs. And more recently, they've gotten on the machine learning train. So there's a lot of excitement around GPU pricing and volume going crazy on the crypto train too. And you know, since the crypto markets dried up, some of that has changed quite a bit. So you know, all these things sounded really positive until the numbers actually revealed themselves. So um, I guess we'll, we'll just go over what happened. So first off, NVIDIA released earnings pretty recently, and then they had the earnings call related to that where they give guidance. And they guided lower on the call. So the street was at $3.4 billion in the January quarter, and they guided to 2.7, give or take a couple of percent. So that implied a drop in annual revenue over the same time period last year. And... We'll post a link in the show notes to the earnings call transcript. But so, um, how do these earnings calls uh, work exactly? So, Nvidia just releases something every quarter. Yeah. So, companies basically, uh, public companies, you know, they file with the SEC every quarter, and a lot of them do press releases of their quarters before their 10Q hits. 
the SEC. And a press release will just have an explanation of like what happened in the quarter, how things went, and it might have, might have some guidance too. And the same day they put out that press release, either in the morning or the evening, they'll do a conference call around that press release to discuss it. So I'd say something uh, in the range of 90% of the time, they answer qualitative questions that give you, as an analyst, a better idea what's going on at the company. And at smaller companies, one thing that's nice is you can just dial in and ask your question, no matter who you are. But at larger companies like Microsoft or NVIDIA, uh, you have to be on like an approved list, like be a uh, Wall Street bank analyst that's covering the stock or maybe a really big investor. Does Microsoft have a, a Telegram chat where everyone asks about price? <laughs> Can you imagine that, though, if they did? <laughs> I was thinking, we chatted about this once where we were like, you know, one thing crypto teams do really well is, is that they actually reach out to their investors through their Telegram chats. I think that was like early on. And then then when we realized a lot of these chat groups are, are, are paid or bought, um, they don't actually give up real information. It's just like totally, totally or useless. Or like to- incomplete violation of what would have been laws if they were public. Right. So then you see why like it, there's there aren't as low friction options for like Microsoft. Right. It would be like you know Microsoft has a chat group and they they announce their like some road massive roadmap change randomly in the chat. Yeah. So management, you know, they might give specific guidance. If they haven't given specific guidance, they'll talk about it really qualitatively. That's why these calls are really nice. So initially, they'll have like uh, some prepared comments and then take questions. And the calls can be really short, like say 30-minute call, I'd say is a really short call, and they could go up to an hour or so. Um, If it's really heated topic, it could go even longer. But during this question portion is when things get really interesting. You know, I found I found them to be more interesting when non-street analysts would ask questions. So investment bank analysts, you know, they have to maintain a good relationship with a company they cover if they want to continue to have access, which and that ends up just limiting what they can ask. Like they can't get too confrontational on this call. But you might see it if it's a smaller company doing the earnings call and there's some investors involved. So can, but do you have any examples of some like good non-street analyst questions some stories? Yeah, so I'll speak in like kind of broad strokes. So a company, Carbo Ceramics, right? And they made, the ticker was CRR. And they made these little propents, which are basically these little like spherical, they're these little spheres that are involved in the whole oil drilling and refining process. And it was crazy to me because like the street would regularly miss this whole story and on the upside and the downside. So investors would come in, like the street would, they would ask like basic questions like what's your gross margin going to be? What affects gross margins? Stuff like that. But an investor would come in and say, okay, we have this many refineries coming online. How much of this market could you take? And if you take this much of the market, do you have the capacity to actually produce? If you don't have the capacity to produce, how much money do you need to raise to be able to build capacity to produce? And there's ask these like like very um, specific and obvious questions around the business itself, as opposed to just like what are your margins going to be, what could they be, stuff like that. It's like, are you actually hmm. going to hit your numbers? You, they ask enough questions where they can like triangulate um, a solid answer. And the way they did, it, they were able to do that by basically figuring out that things are a lot of refineries are coming online. Carbo Ceramics was the only is going to be the sole provider of these propents 
for a while. Like they had a few years and bef- before the Chinese would come online and the Chinese, the worry about the Chinese was that they would come online and bring bring on a bunch of low priced propent. And because of that, that would affect them on the downside. So good investors were able to see both and actually like ask questions about that on the call. And the reason you can do it on the call is because it's not like insider information or anything. Now everyone has access to the same information because you asked about it on the call. Right. Um, yeah. So with NVIDIA on this last one, they placed a lot of blame on their miss on crypto. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to go through each of their uh, specific comments on crypto, which made the call. Uh, before we, we uh, do that, just do you know offhand how much of their like how much their price rose, say like mid to late 2017? Like we know they're down 25% from the beginning of the year, but how much were they up along with the rest of the crypto market? So I'm just looking at a chart here. Early 2017, Jan- they're at about $100. And that into early January 2018, they're $220. So, okay. I mean, that's a that's a big run for a public stock, right? For a to big X. company like that, yeah, for one yeah, year. Yeah, for a big company like that. And if you look at the chart, it's just totally falling apart. We've gone from like 280 to 150 now. They're still up 50% from the beginning of 2017, but just way down from the the highs of the crypto market. Yep. So here's some snippets from the earnings call. So the CFO, Colette Cress. So she said, however, gaming was short of expectations as post-crypto channel inventory took longer than expected to sell through. Gaming card prices, which were elevated following the sharp crypto falloff, took longer than expected to normalize. And then she continues, she's talking about gross margins and a a $57 million charge they had to write that had to do with the sharp fall off of crypto mining demand. Then she says, although the cryptocurrency wave has ended, the channel has taken longer than expected to normalize. So that's a pretty pretty big claim right there, the cryptocurrency wave has ended. And just anecdotally, we we saw this happen because, you know, we had built a PC in mid-late 2017. And we saw GPU prices go up quite a bit after that. And then even when the crypto markets collapsed, GPU prices were staying pretty strong for a long time. It was a pretty slow descent even after the markets did did go down. Yep. I haven't looked at them recently, but from what it sounds like on this call, it's they're they're finally starting to normalize. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of people dumping like partially used hardware into the market. But that doesn't solve it. Like if you're a gamer, you don't want to buy something that's just been mining and is going to burn out on you six months after you after you buy the thing. Right. So I think it definitely was definitely was affected. So here's a comment from Jensen Wang. He's the CEO at NVIDIA. He gets pretty like pretty detailed on these calls and he's been doing this for so long. It's pretty amazing um, that he's still around. So. Yes, well, we came into, you know, someone had asked about uh, inventory. Yes, well, we came into Q3 with excess channel inventory post the crypto hangover. So he's going to say crypto hangover a few <laughs> times. So I don't know if this is his term, is like PR person, IR person is telling him to like use that term to kind of train the analyst to know that the that this, that this crypto is the reason, um, right. as opposed to like underlying, yeah, as opposed to like underlying GPU and gaming demand and stuff. Okay, we expected the pricing in the marketplace to decline and decline slower than we expected. But while it was declining, we were expecting sales volume to grow, demand to grow, and for pricing to be, for volume to be elastic with pricing. It just took longer. And he goes on and on. He says the 1060 
is the number one selling graphics card in the world. And we decided not to sell any more into the channel for the upcoming quarter to get the channel an opportunity to sell through the inventory it already has. And then he goes and talks more about the crypto hangover. He said, the crypto hangover lasted longer than we expected. Prices started to drift down and we expected to come down much more quickly than it did. But when it went down, we expected demand to come up more quickly than it did. Pricing is now down to below pre-launch normal levels. So that, that I mean, if he's right, you know, that gives you some sense that there's some stabilization in pricing now. Hmm. And then there's a little, uh, so Mark Lapassas, who's an analyst from Jefferies. Jefferies is kind of this like mid-level investment bank. He asks, I was hoping you could contrast this product cycle transition to Turing to the product transition you had to Pascal. And is the only or is the main difference the crypto hangover? And then Jensen Wang responds, Turing is the highest performance GPU at every single price point. And so it played no role in the tra- in its transition. It's all about the crypto hangover. <laughs> Interesting. Yep. So I guess what he's saying here is that this new Turing architecture is essentially not a product planning issue where they don't have certain price points where they're not competitive. He's saying that they're, they are the most competitive product at every price point. So any... <laughs> and the issues are to do with this external factor. Right, all of it, <laughs> all the issues. <laughs> and then this, the, the last bit, uh, okay, so he, he continues. Cryptocurrency is an extraordinary factor that we all have to just internalize that it is. And we thought... <laughs> we, <laughs> that's all right. That's <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> and we thought we had done a better job managing the cryptocurrency dynamics. But when the prices came down, I think he's talking about uh, crypto prices, not uh, GPU pricing started to come down, we hoped the demand would start to reflect the declining price, and it just took longer than we expected. And that's what we're experiencing. In terms of the gaming marketplace, if you take a look at some of the dynamics, our notebook gaming, which is not affected by crypto, grew 50% year on year in China. This whole statement has a bunch of funny stuff. First of all, that first line, cryptocurrency is an extraordinary factor that we all just have to internalize that it is. Can we get that like printed on something? <laughs> And that's basic. One, like no, that's like notebook that's like gaming. Just, yeah, if it, notebook gaming is a weird thing for them to latch onto because that's like it's not affected by crypto and it's also not that affected by gaming, is it? I don't know. I don't know that that notebook gaming market. I never thought of as like a primary gaming market. Yeah, like hardcore gamers have their own rigs and and just or even or just even basic desktops with good GPUs, right? Yeah, yeah. or even like super like high end gaming laptops run like more desktop quality hardware. So it's a weird thing for them to like highlight where it's like, it's it's not where most of their products go. Yep. And then finally, one more mention of the crypto hangover before he hangs up on everyone. Okay, uh, thanks everyone. To sum up, the crypto hangover has left the industry with excess inventory, excess channel inventory. It will take one or two quarters to work through it. So I just thought this was pretty interesting because it brings up just a broad view of just kind of how these, how tech stocks work, how semiconductor companies run their businesses and stuff. So a lot of what they said boiled down to them building too much and having to work that inventory off. So why is that concerning or a big deal? It's basically a case study in when a hardware tech company starts to slow down. So when it comes to these semiconductor companies, there's a few assumptions we have to take. So assumption one, building chips isn't like shipping software licenses, right? It takes time to do the physical build. So there's a lot of guesswork around inventory planning. 
if it takes a month to build and ship a chip and you only have six weeks of visibility out, you have to make some assumptions, right? An inventory planner will make some assumptions around their end markets and customers and project out a quarter or longer uh, to figure out how much they're going to need going to need. So whenever they were planning out this crypto stuff, probably they saw prices going crazy. They saw mining demand going through the roof and they just decided we got to build as much as we can because if this thing is going to take off, like we don't want to miss out. So, you know, otherwise they're going to lose share to like AMD or the, the other other GPU guys. So the second assumption is when you have too much inventory, you're going to have to drop prices to get rid of it. And then what ends up happening is you also need to stop building as much. So inventory here for NVIDIA is GPUs. They'd built so much in advance, thinking the crypto demand would continue, that the demand died off and they were left with all this inventory. And then third assumption is when you on the flip side, when you have too little inventory, you're going to have to raise prices because you can and you need to start building to meet demand. So we don't have evidence of this from NVIDIA's last call. I mean, he just Jensen just said basically that it's going to take a couple quarters to work through. But it's a very cyclical industry. At some point, they're going to have burned through their inventory and suddenly things will be in demand again. Yeah. And how much do you think, like, you know, let's say they have two quarters worth of excess inventory, they could slash prices and dump it. But... How much of that are they resistant to do it? Like if you just bought a GPU that was normally 300 bucks that had been selling for $450, $500, and if they suddenly lowered their price to $200 to clear inventory, like is there any element of like goodwill or, you know, just having like a negative impact on your most recent customers? Or do you have to bring prices down slowly? So a lot of this that he said was channel inventory. So yeah. I think they already have stuff in place with their, they're not going to push any more into the channel. They're kind of relying on their channel, like that's a GameStop or whoever oh, to okay. right, sell, sell more product. So I don't think they can lower prices like that. You know, GameStop might do it if they got to really unload. You know, we saw stuff like that in the 2008 downturn with like, not just chip, not just GPUs, but just like cars and all kinds of stuff. Like if houses. you have to, houses, <laughs> yeah. if you have to just unload, everything. you just do yeah, but we're not like at that point right now. So semiconductors are super cyclical, and you know stuff like this happens, and they'll probably just let the channel clear things out and then reassess. So you know this is a pretty like typical semiconductor market cycle. Demand is crazy, so you raise prices. That helps sales and margins. Market looks great, so you start planning for more inventory. Then at some point, demand eases up. And you have too much inventory, so you cut prices, which hurts margins, and then you end up taking these inventory charges. Then at some point down the line, things start turning around again, and you start the cycle all over. Where things might ease up typically during that turn, like things just fell apart. As soon as cryptocurrency prices fell apart, you know, demand just fell apart too. And I would say it, it, maybe it's a bit smoother in like other cycles, but this crypto element is pretty interesting. It was very extreme Yeah, compared to... Normal, I guess. Yeah. Now, I used to think like software would help with inventory planning, and maybe it will one day as things become more integrated. But I think a lot of people would just be surprised with how much guesswork there is for these chip firms to plan inventories. Maybe there's an ICO here. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> get, all, get all the chip companies as your investors, too. Yeah. So there's a lot of market psychology here. How... How does NVIDIA or Texas Instruments or AMD slowing down affect the rest of the space? There's all kinds of like causes and effects here, and they're all interrelated, which is why this why it's so interesting. So NVIDIA claims that the cause of the dip was 
a crypto hangover, but there's effects of that. So the effect of them guiding lower is that they're going to need less equipment from semiconductor equipment manufacturers. They're going to end up causing other semiconductor companies to worry who are going to start pulling back even if they haven't seen a specific slowdown. They're going to start worrying other tech companies for a similar reason. So take another semiconductor company that's seeing a slowdown as well. Their cause might be something else, like you know Apple cutting back orders, which they just announced. All the suppliers into Apple are going to be concerned about that, right? And they're going to have to cut production. If one of their biggest customers lowers the unit numbers, you're going to have to lower your unit numbers too. So the effect there is that they're also going to need less manufacturing equipment and they're going to start worrying other tech companies too. So, you know, what if other PC manufacturers, so Apple announced that they're cutting back units. So what if other PC manufacturers start cutting back their units? What if other phone manufacturers start cutting back their units? So all these supply chains are like super integrated right now and they're really tied together. So all their successes and failures are are pretty linked. And I think the thing with like semiconductors these days is that they get shipped into everything. So hardware companies, phone companies, network routers, other chip companies that need specific chip parts like Apple, Cisco, Juniper Networks, Palo Alto Networks. So everyone is buying chips for their equipment. So when you see some semi-companies miss, it doesn't look great for tech. Hmm. One interesting thing to note, though, um, just in terms of trading the semiconductor market, it's actually this whole cyclical sinusoidal type of environment is actually really great for traders who know these markets really well. Trading semiconductors is basically an exercise in calling market peaks and troughs. Like a lot of semiconductor traders will have models around things like wafer count, unit sales, and talk to many as many people as they can to understand how things are tracking now versus a month ago versus two months ago versus three months ago. So if their models are telling them that wafers have been, let's say, let's make up a unit count of like a million wafers every month over the last few months. And then one month, your model has a day 800,000 wafers. And it's not like a seasonality thing, meaning the same time last year was actually also up versus the prior period. You know, that's a sign that something's off. So maybe you want to take a short position on and do some deeper research to conclude like, okay, we're at a peak now. So yeah, I'm going to post in the show notes two completely opposite takes on this last semiconductor cycle. And so it's, uh, there are two views. One is from a investor called uh, Jag Capital. And another is from uh, Maury Marshall, who's uh, with the supply chain consultancy. And it's really funny, like how different the two takes are. So Jag Capital back in late July, they had published some research or, I mean, they call it research. I don't really want to call this research. Uh, They published a (laughs) a statement about the semiconductor market. So this is what they say. From our standpoint, we do not currently see a cycle peak on the near slash intermediate term time horizon. We think that it's important to recognize that data centers are growing at a torrid pace and that they need a boatload of chips to work efficiently. (laughs) (laughs) Our thesis in turn is that data centers may be making the semiconductor industry incrementally less cyclical than it was in the past. I like how quantitative this whole thing is. Yeah, exactly. Currently near intermediate, torrid pace, boatload of chips. Work efficiently. Incrementally less cyclical. Right. (laughs) So There's like nothing here you can put, like pin any sort of scale on. Yeah. Boatload of chips is their analysis. Like 
There are a ton of data centers. This is the most high level type of investing you can do. You know, we always joke about like top down versus bottom up investing. This is yeah. like the definition of top down. I think data centers are going to be huge. We got to buy semiconductor <laughs> stocks. Like there's some, their, their PM is sitting there and saying that. Uh, <laughs> so d- just consider that analysis versus Maury Marshall. So I really liked Maury Marshall's take because it's really specific. So in the electronics publishing and the supply chain, it's just a, a news outlet, research outlet. He has an article called for semiconductor sales cycle, winter is coming. It was a little nod to like the Game of Thrones. And he made a little funny analogy, which is pretty p- well tied to the cycle. Winter is coming is a warning to be prepared to have enough food and other necessities stored to survive through the cold, which can last several years. And I just picture like GPU chips as as part of this, what I'm storing. So he literally published this at the peak of the market on October 4th. He has a theme of, you know, this bull market cycle has gone on too long. And that's not data, that is opinion. But he does make some really astute observations that kind of back up that opinion. And I want to point them out here. So first one, DRAM ASPs, ASPs are average selling price. DRAM ASPs are now more than double what they were in 2016. NAND flash ASPs are more than one and a half times what they were in 2016. Indications are that these ASPs are at a sustainable crest. Unsustainable. Oh, sorry, unsustainable crest. That's important. Uh, Number two, (laughs) OEM's budget for the memory content in the devices they manufacture. They install the amount of memory that the budget will pay for. As memory densities increase and prices rise accordingly, OEMs simply use fewer of the higher density memories staying within their budget. So as prices for a given density decline, OEMs install more memory staying within their budget. So that's that works well in normal times, but at a one and a half or two and a half times increase in ASP with no increase in densities is not normal times. Uh, number three, indications are that an increase in memory ASPs has been due to capacity limitations. Historically, when memory ASPs increased, one or more of the manufacturers increased capacity, driving down ASPs or reduced prices, hoping to capture market share. And this last part, number four, is, is really interesting. CapEx has expanded dramatically. There will be pressure to fill the new fabs. There is also an X factor. Three companies in China are investing $56 billion in DRAM and NAND capacity. This is bound to change the competitive landscape of the memory market as these production facilities ramp. ASPs are already experiencing some softening. What do you think about this, Faison? I, I really liked these observations. Yeah, it's very... Like, there's actually more that you can pin on to his opinion in terms of like where it's coming from. The other, the other one was like, as you said, like data centers are going to be big and there's like, they need a shitload of chips <laughs> or boatload of chips, <laughs> whatever. I don't know which is bigger. <laughs> um, but here, like you have some specific points that he raises that you can like go research yourself and look into and see if it like, you know, supports or refutes a his thesis and also like fit it into yours. So, you know, there's like a lot more here that you can actually follow up on. Yeah. And this is, uh, to your point, this is kind of like how a bottoms up level researcher would approach this. They would have, they would see this and actually like talk to the guy, like get him on the phone, talk to him. And then this ASPs are already experiencing some softening. Like I'd want to know more about that. 
Like, where is that yeah, data exactly. from? Like, how softening by how much? A couple percent, ten percent, twenty percent? Like that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. There's just a lot of things to to research here. Whereas the other one, it's like, what do you do? Like, how do you find out our data center is going to be big? Just Google that. What <laughs> <laughs> so comes back? Ask ask a data center guy. Hey, how big is yeah. this, how big is this going to be? Ask Siri. <laughs> And so finally, he finishes off with uh, semiconductor memory SPs are going to fall. Semiconductor sales are going to decline. The U.S. economy is facing a probable downturn. The stock market may t- soon get a hit. That was October 4th. And like, if you look at, I mean, that was literally the peak of this last cycle. Yeah. So, you know, really interesting analysis from him, much more than the whole like tech needs boatload of chips argument from JAG. But you see stuff like this really all the time. Big investor types want to do these like top-down analyses that involve zero groundwork. And then there's this small semiconductor supply chain news outlet that's probably really dialed into the supply chain, come out with this well-thought-out analysis that has a historical basis of like decades. Anyway, so this is why this semiconductor cycle is important to pay attention to for the rest of tech. It doesn't seem like Netflix, which is down 27% versus the top, or Amazon, which is down 20% from the top, has any kind of exposure to NVIDIA or Texas Instruments. But they're all tech. They're high value, uh, high valuation, high growth, and they kind of sit in the same bucket of sentiment. You rarely see like one tech sector down 30% and another tech sector like up 20%. They're kind of all like grouped in together. And as far as like the just the general market outside of tech, you know, there's a lot of other stuff we've been hearing. Like the most obvious is with interest rates rising, home sales are starting to slow down. Some places are offering vacations or free home improvements or like a big credit towards home improvements. You know, worries about tariffs, if there's going to be a tariff war with China, what that means and how that might affect the U.S. economy. Even here in New York, I know I was in the city this past weekend and there's so many empty storefronts. You know, one of my favorite bodegas in Murray Hill was gone and every block there was like at least one storefront. There was, there was just nothing. There was like a big for rent sign and a phone number. So hmm. there have been empty storefronts in the city for a while, but, you know, we're just hearing more and more about just the broader like rental market softening up. Faison, didn't you see a bunch of like discounting going on when you were looking for a new place? Yeah. So I I was recently in the sort of apartment hunting process and saw a lot of weird behavior throughout New York, like Manhattan and Brooklyn. And I also looked in Long Island City until Amazon made their announcement. (laughs) So yeah, the the first of that was, you know, that is the one market that seems to not, not be as affected only because of the Amazon announcement. So I think people are holding off giving discounts because they just want to see how, like, what's going to happen. But in New York, it's funny in that because there's rent control, a lot of places don't want to just lower rent because that like sets a new low water mark against which they can like apply their rent control. So what a lot of people do is leave the rent high but offer discounts. I've been seeing it everywhere. I think a lot of places that I looked and not just like managed buildings where traditionally they're no fee, but even places with a broker that you're not paying a broker fee or getting a month free. A lot of places were doing two months free and no broker fee on a two-year lease. I had one place that offered me $1,000 in Lyft credit. <laughs> uh, that's more so because it's on the L train, which is shutting down. Okay. I think rather than lowering rent, they're trying to like trick people into sitting on the bridge in a lift right. um, where they'll rent it a thousand bucks in like a month. But yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of discounting and it was everywhere. I mean, everywhere in Manhattan, most of Brooklyn, 
a lot of Queens. There's, there's just a few neighborhoods that are like overly convenient that there has not been discounting, but where that's the case, there still seems to be plenty of inventory. Yeah. So there's just, uh, you know, when, if things are going really well, you won't typically see like massive discounting, you know, these kind of worries. So how does, how does all this stuff affect crypto? I think a lot of people in crypto have taken this argument that crypto is the embodiment of a volatile risk asset, which it is, you know, if just given its volatility. So by definition, and if traditional tech is taking a 20% beating, then Bitcoin should take a 40% beating, which we've seen happen in a really short amount of time. Yeah. So like on our last podcast, we were talking about how volatility was drying up and how funds were looking for other ways to generate alpha outside of volatility. And things have just come full circle in a really short amount of time. Yeah, because I think when we had recorded that one, there there was that phase where Bitcoin was sitting in sort of the five and six thousands for a long, long, long time. Yeah. It's just taken that big, big hit recently. Yeah, it's 30-day volatility was at lows and had been tracking lower and lower over the course of the year. So, you know, the, what's also happened is because it's sold off, there's all the bears have just like come out of the woodwork. Come out of the woodwork. So there was a really bad New York Times take recently that I thought was worth talking about. So in general, like we've ranted about this for oh, on a few podcasts now, just in terms of like how bad the mainstream news outlets are around covering crypto. And there was an article in the New York Times called Five Reasons Cryptocurrency Prices Are Plunging Again by Nathaniel Popper. And I originally became familiar with Popper's writing from his, he has a published a book called Digital Gold. And it was actually really good. Like it was a fun high level overview of the history of Bitcoin. Um, only the major issue that I had with it is that it focused more on the players through this kind of narrative rather than te- technology. Like there were chapters on like Charlie Shrem, you know, a few of the early Bitcoin participants yeah. and those folk. It was more mythological than historical. Yeah, but it barely talked about like mining and hash rate, why those things are important and and whatnot. And like, I don't know, Faison, we see this stuff over and over again where like people focus on these like players and as you as you said, like mythology rather than the specifics around like Bitcoin and crypto. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I think one big piece is just because that stuff is always very popular. Uh, whether it's like finance or sports or any subject, whenever you have like something where there's a small enough group of major players that you can like focus on them, it, it tends to be very like fascinating to build that mythology around them. And specifically for Bitcoin and crypto, a lot of it is like, it's not like you can learn it in little bits and pieces. There's almost like a certain amount of a learning curve to really be able to understand what's going on. And it's hard to deliver that via an article. So I think it's just easier to focus on the myth, a the mythology, and then b a lot of the like you know the stuff that we see people latch onto, like the the big thing for a while was like oh mining uses the equivalent electricity of like I don't know the sun for like six minutes or yeah. I'm just making stuff yeah, up yeah, yeah. but there were a lot of like those, those 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 sorts of headlines where it was easy to sensationalize some specific aspect of it. Because I think you can basically get that out to an audience without the audience actually being familiar with the underlying mechanism of like Bitcoin or anything like that. So I thought it'd be worth doing a teardown of this uh, New York Times piece. So I'll just read the opening, opening few sentences. The news on, and it sounds 
you know, I'm just going to read it dramatically because it sounds so dramatic. The news. Just picture like it's a dark and stormy night and like, you know, thunder is going and lightning is, is striking <laughs> and then Vikram. <laughs> We got to add sound effects to this podcast. This would actually be perfect. Um, The news on Wall Street this week has been bleak. Sharp declines, fears of a bear market, and high-flying technology stocks that suddenly took a tumble. Traditional stock investors may be taking a beating, but they should be glad they didn't put their money in cryptocurrencies. As of Wednesday, the price of Bitcoin has fallen about 25% in a week and was down more than 75% from its peak in December. The latest declines are occurring almost a year after cryptocurrency markets fueled by a rush of new wealthy investors went into overdrive. So the article's title is Five Reasons Cryptocurrency Prices Are Plunging Again. So he has five reasons he cites. Number one, relying on unregulated infrastructure and exchanges is risky. Number two, regulators are cracking down. Number three, Cryptocurrencies are managed by communities of developers that can get messy. (laughs) Uh, We'll talk about that one. Uh, Number four, cryptocurrencies were going to solve all kinds of real world problems, but the real world hasn't had much use for cryptocurrencies. Number five, governments could get into cryptocurrencies and do a better job of managing them. All right. First off, these are criticisms of the industry rather than an explanation for the price selling off, which is what the title of the article is, right? right? Also, that last one is what attracted me to the article. Someone tweeted that line, mm-hmm. and like I was not expecting this to be a New York Times article. I was like, this is the most crazy statement someone could make. And then I click on it, and that's how I found this article. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway. Yeah, so these are just kind of criticisms, not like not reasons for the price selling off. So that immediately seemed like a red flag that he was like answering these, a question that he didn't ask. But I thought, you know, let's try to give him the benefit of the doubt and just walk through to these concerns. So the first, relying on unregulated infrastructure and exchanges is risky. So uh, he cites a few things in this portion that there's research to suggest that Tether inflated the price of cryptos, that the Justice Department is looking into it, that OKEX, which is this crypto exchange, has some massive underlying problems. I guess we could also bring up like Mt. Gox, you know, that was kind of a third, that was an exchange that was risky and so forth. But the... So I don't buy that argument for the reason that if you look historically at like adoption of any new way of doing things, it often starts out unregulated. And if it's like fundamentally useful or people want it, that's never really been much of a hindrance. Yep. Like whether we're looking at like Uber entering a lot of new markets or, you know, where like I've been to places where you basically, you know, the driver will ask you to sit in the front seat so that the cops don't pull them over. And it, <laughs> but if like if it's sufficiently useful, again, they seem to be growing very well there. And even going back to like, isn't that how like Vanderbilt built his fortune, like running like illegal ferries across the East or West River or something like that? I don't know. I'm not familiar with so, that. So yeah, so so like the the regulation thing, like I get that that might be keeping out some institutional investors and slowing the growth, but it doesn't explain a, like a eighty percent price decline. Because none of like things like Mt. Gox or these unrelated exchanges, they didn't spring up to support the 80% of the new growth. Like a lot of that stuff was sort of known and those problems had already existed and they predate like the demand. So I don't buy that one. The second one, regulators are cracking down. Here he cites that actions by regulatory agencies like the SEC, they're going after ICOs. A couple reported to have to return money to the uh, investors that they raised from. 
Yeah, there's probably some truth to SEC crackdowns affecting the viability of ICOs, but I also think the reality is that the ICO market had collapsed with the price and well before the SEC uh, crackdowns came through. So the third, cryptocurrencies are managed by communities of developers. That can get messy. Okay, so the first line of his article is here is the Bitcoin network was created with so-called open source software released to the world in January 2009. You know what this makes me think? What's that? This makes me think that this person's primary and potentially only understanding of open source or exposure to like that word open source is in the context of Bitcoin. And so their whole like view of what that is, is within the context of Bitcoin. Like that's just my initial impression when I read a line like that. Can you expand on that? What do you mean? So let's say I'm, you know, I'm a journalist that wants to write about technology uh, and I go do a little research on Bitcoin and I have no other like interest in tech or no understanding of like open source or software development processes or, you know, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Cause like open source has a long history going back decades. Yep. But I start off with Bitcoin and I learn about open source in the context of like, Oh, a bunch of these developers got together and made Bitcoin. My understanding of how open source works would just be that like there's a group of people that went and created money. Yep. And like they're the ones that govern this money. I see what you mean. Versus like having an understanding of like open source is like a development process that like happened to be the way Bitcoin ran their project in addition to like honestly most major technology projects. Yep. So there's a big difference. And so the concern he cites is the Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash Fork. And then the subsequent Bitcoin ABC and Bitcoin SV from Bitcoin Cash, also another fork. His claim here is that because it's easy to fork Bitcoin, the notion of 21 million Bitcoin being fixed is at risk. And he says, uh, this is from him, the creator of Bitcoin said only 21 million Bitcoins would ever be created. But how scarce do those 21 million Bitcoins seem if there are also 21 million tokens of each new copycat? So there, I don't know. There are a ton of problems with this statement. Where do we where do we start with this one, Faison? I mean, the like the value of those twenty one million Bitcoin is because people recognize that this is Bitcoin. It's no like it doesn't matter if there's three other forks or if I make twenty one million forks a day. Like it's pretty. I, I don't even know how to how to go after this one because it's like if I have ten pounds of gold and then I just like take a ten pound rock and paint it gold and say I have twenty pounds of gold. I'm not increasing the supply. Like if there were only 21 million pounds of gold in the world, yep. I've just painted a rock gold. And it, this is the same thing. Like no one's going to believe it. There's no consensus behind it. So there's no reason for it to have value. So I don't know why a fork dilutes scarcity somehow. Yeah. And if you doesn't take into consideration, you know, Bitcoin's history, it's 10 years old now, it's hash rate, number of attacks it's sustained and so forth. Just because you can... Or even has any forking actually had a direct impact on value? Right. I mean, is it uh, like, like, can we also take the claim if, if forking has an effect on value, we can also make the claim that, uh, these repeated forks have, have given Bitcoin value as well. Yeah. And you know, he asked the question, how scarce do those 21 million Bitcoins seem if there are also 21 million tokens of each new copycat? I would ask that he does a little bit of research and follows up on that and gives us something more than just a half-assed question. (laughs) Okay. All right. Claim number four, cryptocurrencies were going to solve all kinds of real world problems, but the real world had much use for cryptocurrencies. So right off the bat, the problem with this one is that he ignores 
people who have used Bitcoin to transact in countries, especially where their fiat currencies are completely screwed. So I, this shouldn't be taken lightly. It's not like, you know, the U.S. is the center of, of everything. You know, company, uh, countries like Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Iran, you know, a lot of places have had major problems with their own currencies and their people have looked to Bitcoin as a way to store and transfer wealth. So if, right. if your local currency gets destroyed, you have to preserve your wealth to afford basic goods like food for your kids, right? Right. Like I would argue that yeah, like it it hasn't transformed the world yet. If it, if the you know the implication was that it was immediately going to change everything, but all of the stuff that it it claims to have been able to do, like like you said, store and transfer wealth, people have actually used it for buying homes, buying cars, as a hedge against the devaluation of their own fiat. As a way, like we've seen multisig be used for you know various sorts of transactions. So. It's gone beyond the definitely beyond the proof of concept stage. I think the argument is just has it done as much as some subjective opinion of what it should have done by now? Yeah. And if that's the case, make the claim. What should Bitcoin have done by now? So I'm not totally clear what he means by real world here. You know, he hasn't used Bitcoin to get a double latte from Starbucks, but there's a whole world that transacts in Bitcoin. You know, just some numbers here. Blockchain.info, they they have an estimated daily dollar volume. And it's been as recent in the last couple months. It's been you know eight hundred million dollars a day to two billion a day, depending on the day you're looking at. Um, so to the other stuff about, and he goes on to this, he also goes into this uh, little bit about Ethereum not becoming a world computer. People have talked about it being a world computer. Personally, I don't I don't know what that means exactly, but it's still early for a lot of alts to play out. I even though I'm skeptical of a lot of alts, we don't really know how they're going to play out yet. So applications aren't here yet, but that doesn't preclude them from ever arriving. Yeah. And I would make the same case as I did for Bitcoin is that this just is a a function of expectation. Objectively, Ethereum has proven that it is a like distributed computer, we've seen transactions occur. We've seen smart contracts successfully execute. Like even though it's not necessarily a world-changing application, something like CryptoKitties does prove the underlying, like how Ethereum can be used. Where you have this idea of scarcity that you can attach to contracts, you can actually attach to application logic that's running on this, like you know, distributed virtual machine. Yep. And so, I think it's just a matter of like, yeah, maybe the expectations were very high last year and those have not been met. But I don't think anything objectively has been disproven in terms of like the capability of these technologies. And one other thing that I think crypto has done, and it's brought a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have been interested in finance to try to understand it, like finance, markets, exchanges, what money is. These are all like philosophical questions, how governments create a secondary tax of inflation, how that inflation affects your dollar um, or your savings. You know, there's so much going on. Yeah. And that would be kind of like a social application of Bitcoin. So his last claim, number five, government could get into cryptocurrencies and do a better job of managing them. So this whole government crypto angle is a weird one. What do you What do you think, Fizan? Yeah, like this one is so off the mark that it just makes me think like, Again, based on the the like how superficial the questions raised and the rest of the article was, it just seems like he started off with "I'm gonna have a five point list," and he got to point four. He's like, "Shit, I need one more." <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I'm not trying to be like, I'm not, I'm really not trying to be funny. I'm like, I was just giving you my initial impression off this article because I don't understand what. 
Like, I really don't understand what he means by that. Governments already issue and manage currencies. And if the idea is that it should just be done uh, digitally, that's not anything very, like that's unrelated to cryptocurrency almost. Yep. Like we're just talking about governments should have digital currencies in addition to like printing paper money. It's an unrelated topic. And I don't understand what he means by managing cryptocurrencies. I understand regulation, like in terms of taxing and money transfer laws and KYC AML. But by definition, you can't externally manage a cryptocurrency because like the management needs to happen via consensus and on the actual, you know, notes. Right. So it just seems like a half-assed statement. Yeah, that's the point I was Again. getting at earlier where there's all these extra things besides the price, right? Like consensus rules, hash rate, game theory. Like there's all these like really interesting topics that don't get enough playtime. So yeah. Overall, I think the article missed out on educating an audience about topics outside of price. So Bitcoin is really interesting. You know, we're trying to create money outside the purview of governments. We're trying to become our own banks. We're trying to decentralize entrenched internet players. You know, this is the ultimate underdog story. And, you know, I thought people would right. love underdog stories. Yeah, exactly. And and it's not even that, you know, obviously I take issue with a lot of the opinions that he has in, in this article, but it's not so much that. It's just the, the quality of like there was, it seems like there was no research done. It was really just a half-assed list. Yep. And then he added one more point at the end yep. to make it around five. Right. Then just like shipped it. <laughs> hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R. Or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks.